many, many months ago, in my devotional reading, I found myself once again back in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. And as I was reading John, chapter 12, I came across these words. Now there were certain Greeks among those that came up to worship at the feast. Now these Greeks, we're not sure whether they had, were con converts to Judaism or whether we just heredim. That means that they were God-fearers. But John said they'd come to worship. In other words, we get the idea they'd not come to spectate, but they'd come to participate. They'd come to celebrate in the God of the Jews. And the word goes on to say, Then they came to Philip, we're from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Now, I'm not really interested in the protocol that the Greeks adopted to go firstly to Philip, then to Andrew, but I am really interested in the Greeks' pursuit. Here they were, not at the end of the distant crowd, they were very in close proximity. So close that they could talk to the, the disciples. And yet they asked the question, we would see Jesus. I began to think upon these guys. We don't know who they are. So we don't know their names. We don't know what happened to them. But I began to think about these guys. What did they want? We know very well they just didn't want to see Jesus. He was there within arm's reach. What did they want? Obviously, they wanted to talk with him. They wanted to interact with him. And so, I'd have to ask the question, what would they want to talk about? You know, if you ask for an interview with someone, you've normally got something in mind. Huh? Like you don't just you know, say, let's talk. And then say, what do you want to talk about? I don't know. I just want to talk. Okay, do you have a subject in mind? Huh? I just want to talk. What did these Greeks have in mind? What would pique their interest? Let me give you a few ideas. Well, Greeks were certainly interested in politics. After all, it's the Greeks who gave two major forms of government. And they were certainly very well versed in those forms of government. That they were based upon two principles. That is, the integrity of the leader and the information of the voter. 
those two things are necessary for the democratic system to work. And they'd heard about Jesus talking of another kind of system. Talk with the government of God. What does that mean? Talk with the kingdom of heaven. It would be fascinating to hear them talk about politics. Because we still talk about politics today, don't we? How many of you are Democrats? Don't raise your hands. How many of you are Republicans? Don't raise your hands. How many of you are Libertarians? Don't raise your hands. I'm a monarchist. I believe in King Jesus. They could have talked about politics. Oh, but they could have talked about philosophy. After all, the Greeks had great philosophical schools. They loved to debate. They loved to engage in diatribe. They loved to discuss political systems. And of course, today, because of the emergence of a new religion called atheism, Christian apologists and Christian philosophers think that they have to address the issue and appeal to it and answer it. And so the modern Christian philosophers, they talk about five major principles. They call it the five arguments. The, and of course, if you're a philosopher, you're going to use $10 words. They can't use simple words. You know, every time you listen to Marty, it's like, hey, what's he talking about? No, I don't mean that. You understand what she's talking about. Sometimes the words are elongated. And so what Christian philosophers talk about the ontological principle. That's a simple, nice way of simply saying that the instinct of God is found in every society around the world. You don't have to talk about God. You don't have to simply say there is a God. People simply accept it, except the atheists. And so they speak very eloquently about the ontological argument. Then they talk with the cosmological argument. Well, there's a creation which is based upon Paul speaking in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Then they go on to talk about the teleological argument. That's another big word which simply means to say that if there's a watch, there must be a watchmaker. It's an argument for design. But then there's a moral argument. Where did the idea of right and wrong come from? Of course, the atheists are very clear. Well, everybody has the right to make up their own mind, sure, until it comes to dealing with you personally. Everybody can do whatever they like as long as they don't do it to you. Then it's wrong. It's the moral argument. And then, of course, fifthly, there's the psychological argument. God can be known. And God can be experienced. And everybody in the house understands this principle that we've been touched by him. We've sensed his presence. We know him. He's real. Jesus wasn't interested in being seen as a politician. 
He wasn't interested in discussing philosophy. He wasn't even interested in being seen as a physician. And this is very possible because people always come to Jesus because they had a need. But Jesus wasn't interested in being seen as a physician at this particular moment. Or they might have gone to him because he's a prophet. The Greeks believed in prophecies. They had oracles in which they went to find out the satanic alternative to truth. But Jesus was not interested in being seen as a prophet. So whether it's a politician, whether it's a philosopher, whether it's a physician, or whether it's going to be that the prophet, Jesus wanted to be seen as something else. He wanted to be seen as a priest. He said, priest, where do you get that from? Well, let me read it to you. Because of my age, I can no longer quote scripture the way that I used to. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew, in turn, came to and Philip and told Jesus, there are a bunch of guys over here that want to see you. Now, that's not in the King James Version. Jesus answered them, saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternity. If any man serves me, let him follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, let my fa- him my father will honor. Then he said, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and we glorified again. Therefore the people who stood by heard and said that he thundered. Others said, an angel spoke to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now with the judgment of this world, now with the rule of the world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, but to all men and to myself. This is the second occasion that John makes specific expression pointing to the cross. The first was found in John chapter 3, where at the end of his dialogue with Nicodemus, the Lord Jesus is recorded as saying, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, here is the second occasion. 
because it's in the mouth of two witnesses of things established. The Lord is simply saying, if I be lifted up, I will draw people unto me. He's speaking of himself as a priest. And he's speaking of the cross. Because the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus is this. He is both the offerer and he is the offering. He is the priest who ministers at the table, but he is also the sacrifice which is being presented. And so, the Lord Jesus is focusing upon the cross. This would have been intriguing to the Greeks because they were concerned about the issues of life. They had three major problems in their philosophical analysis. They believed in God. So they weren't atheistic. They just didn't know who he was. Unlike the Jews, they couldn't give him his name, and they certainly didn't understand his nature. But they had these three problems. The problem of life happens to be sin and sickness. Where did it come from? Why is it happening in our world? Because there should be no redeeming feature of what either sin or sickness. They were concerned about the paradox of life. Why do good things happen to bad people? Why do bad things happen to good people? They had no answers. All they knew was that life seemed to be cynical and capricious. Then there was the purpose of life. A human like trees, we germinate, we grow, we have the ability to reproduce ourselves, and then we die. Like a tree, is it useful only for firewood? to provide the means and nourishment for that which is to follow? Is that all there is to life? Jesus is pointing to the cross and pointing to himself as the priest who ministers from the cross. Look at three things with me about the cross. First of all, it's reality, the reality of the cross. Christianity has the incredible ability to take that which is ugly and make it look beautiful. And so we have taken the cross and made it into an exquisite piece of jewelry. 
we wear it around our neck or around our arm or we dangle it from somewhere. The cross. That which was the most ugly, diabolical expression of the human imagination has been beautified by the church. Not so to the Jews. To the Jews, the cross was anathema. Because the Deuteronomic expression of Torah simply says that everyone hangs upon a tree is accursed. The cross was an offense to the sensibilities of the Greek mind. They looked at it. They hated it. It was not part of the judicial system. The cross had been developed in Persia and perfected in, in Rome. The purpose for it was to produce the most excruciating form of pain for the longest period of time to abuse the human body. To the Greeks, it was an offense. It remains an expression of rejection in Islam. When you talk of the cross to a Muslim, they will recognize the cross, but they will repudiate the fact that Isa was the one crucified there. They recoil from the idea that God would allow this special prophet of his to hang upon the gibbet. They said, no, there was a substitute. He was the substitute. But they said, there was a substitute. Someone that looked like him. It wasn't Isa. It wasn't Jesus. The reality of the cross is still despised by members of the modern church. One of the leaders of the emergent church is on record of having said that if God purposed and planned for Jesus to die upon the cross, that would make him the most infamous father in the whole of human history. The offense of the cross. It was the Sanhedrin out of anger and bitterness cried out for Jesus to be crucified. And in their weird humor was pleased to see what was taking place until when the cross was lifted up there written above his head in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew were the words Jesus, some say of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. 
Because the Jews have a strange way of reading scripture, they not only read it the regular way that we would read passages of literature, they have many ways of reading. They will take the first letter of the first word. Then they'll jump a few words and take the first letter of that word. And then they'll jump at the same time. It's called the sequential reading. It's become known as the biblical code. When they looked at the writings of the cross, the first letter they saw was a yod. They jumped over to Hamalach. They saw H. That's the name for God. Yah. We heard our music team sing this morning, Alleluia. It's the sacred name of God. They saw it. Then they also reverse read letters. And I've reversed the letters which are on that statement written by Pilate. They see, you're hurting the Jews. Hey, the Jews. Again, it spells Yod. Yod. Hey. And they're looking at the cross. They sing Jesus. And above him, they read the words on two occasions. And it's by two things a thing is established. They see the word. it and Pilate said what I have written I have written because in ignorance Pilate had written one of the most profound statements which is known to mankind God was in Christ Reconciling the world back to himself. That's the reality of the cross. But look at the relevance of it. If we could be there that day and look beyond the savagery I look at the mystery of what's taking place. That from the bottom, looking at the pole, we'd see that the pole didn't just go seven feet, eight feet, or nine feet high. We'd see that the pole went all the way up to the throne of God. Then if we had the ability to sit on the throne and look down the pole, it says the pole didn't just stop 
on the top of planet Earth, but it plunged the deepest forms of human depravity. It went lower than man could ever go. It sunk deeper than sin could ever reach. The pole, God was in Christ, reaching down to man. But then we step back and look again at the cross. And from the center, Paul, looking to the left, we understand it reached from then to way beyond the garden, covering every individual who'd ever been or who'd ever lived, reaching by the cross. But then we look again to that on the right, we see that that pole goes, that horizontal beam goes from that present time beyond the 20th century, beyond the 21st century, beyond the time up until the judgment seat, the great white throne when time shall be no more, and it covers them all. The relevance of the cross, as long as there's a person who knows sin. There's a covering for sin in the name of Jesus and by the blood of Jesus. That's the relevance of the cross. You can make it a piece of jewelry if you wish. But I see God's love so extravagant, so exquisite, so reaching to me in my lost state. And all I can say is, blessed be the name of the Lord. The reality, the relevance, but look at the repercussions of the cross. The Apostle Paul simply says he was, he died for our sin according to the scriptures. But he rose again for our justification. Jesus purchased it. That everything that was ever lost had been regained. Oh, there is a teaching within the church which simply suggests it's basically not a new teaching, though it's new to us. It's a, an adaptation of Augustine's theory of magisterium. And so this segment of the church simply says that everything that was in Adam is now in the church. That all the prerogatives and all the principles and all the powers which have been deposited in, in Adam is now in the church. That is not true. 
all the prerogatives and privileges that was in the first man are now resident in the second man. And that second man is called the last Adam in contrast to the first Adam. All the prerogatives and privileges, all the powers and dominions are not found in the church, they found in him. It's Jesus who is glorified. It's Jesus who is exalted. It's Jesus who is the magnificent one. It's Jesus who can say, all power and authority has been given to me. Therefore, you go and I'll give you the ability to do your thing. The writer of the Hebrews refutes that little argument by simply saying these words. I'm sorry again, I've got to read it. Oh, hallelujah, help me get up, Lord. <laughs> Don't grow old, folk. It's not all it's cracked up to be. <clears throat> Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2. It's talking about a great salvation. He said, God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It's not to angels that he subject the world to come about which we are speaking. There's a place where someone testifies saying, what is man? that you're mindful of him. Or the son of man, that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. You put everything under him. God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet, at this present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus who is made a little over the angels now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We see Jesus. But by the power and the dynamic of his cross he has made it possible for us to live. Ah, you might say, but old man, how does this apply to me? And how is this outworked in my life? Let me give you five words. It starts with dedication. You've got to shake your computer now and again to make sure it's working. Dedication. What do you mean, old man, by dedication? Well, the Holy Spirit comes and convicts us of sin. And as he convicts us of sin, we recoil from it because we don't like what we see. 
and in recoiling from it, that's what the Bible calls repentance. And we turn from to turn to. We cry to God, God, please cover it. Please atone. The Jews have been doing that the last couple of days as they celebrated Yom Kippur. Or as you say in Texas, Yom Kippur. <laughs> they call for atonement. Cover it. And he says, I'll cover it. But Lord, I just don't want you to cover it. I want to receive you. I want you to come into my life. I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my Savior. The Lord said, I'll do that. And at that moment, we dedicate ourselves to him. The cross calls us to dedication. Ah, but from dedication, oh, I better hurry. But from dedication, we then go on to desire. You see, the receiving of Jesus, what they call being born again. Being born from above. And just like babies have three dominant desires, so those three dominant desires are evidence within us. The first dominant desire is, feed me. And for a young family who's had their first child, they're astonished. The baby wants to eat on the hour, every hour, or whenever necessary in between, it seems like. How can such a little thing devour so much? The second thing is not only feed me, change me. Because baby can make a mess of things, can't they? The third thing is, hold me. And those are the three dynamics that are found within the church of somebody who's just been born again. Feed me. They desire the milk or the meat of the word. Change me. And just in case you simply say, but Brother Evans, I don't sin. John said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, that word means more than acknowledging it. It's the desire to be removed from it. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to use a paraphrasing and to clean us up. Oh, there's some folk in the church this morning who need to be cleaned up a bit. But then there's a desire, hold me. It's a longing in our hearts. As a baby begins to grow, and every grandma loves this experience. As they walk in the room, and the baby goes, you. Mama left me here on my own. You. 
And Grandma goes, oh, poor little baby. You pick it up and the thing puts its head on your shoulder and says, oh, lovely, lovely, lovely. The desire to be held. The hymn writer said it this way, more about Jesus would I know. More of his grace to others show. Or as Paul said, that I might know him. And the power of his resurrection. The cross creates a sense of, what's the first word? Dedication. Which leads to desire. Which leads to discovery. You know the amazing thing about the Christian life? As you receive Jesus, you begin to see things. Oh, I didn't know that. Just like Anna said to me, I didn't know that. The Lord opens up things. We see things in Scripture. We've read it a hundred times. Didn't see it before. Discovery. My favorite story from Nicaragua underscores this. It was on the Sunday evening, the team had left, and Stephen and Elisa and the Dennis, William, and their parents invited us to join them for dinner. We were going to have dinner with uh, David and Bonnie Spencer. Marvelous people. While we were waiting for the meal to be served, into the room where we were seated came a couple. In fact, to the family. They are the ones who have the oversight of the largest Christian television network in Nicaragua. And so he sat down and he said, I've got a story to tell. And so we were prepared to listen to stories. He said, after church this morning, he said, I'm just going back home. I got a phone call from one of the leading evangelical ministers in the city. And he simply said, I have a problem. So he said, well, what's your problem? Well, he said, as you know, I was a big supporter of the crusade. He said, I loved the fact that they reached out in compassion. He said, I loved the fact that they went and spoke in some of the small churches in villages around the city. He said, I loved the fact that he called our, our nation to pray. He said, uh, this Saturday night service thing, in which they're calling for power and calling for fire and calling for, for, for this. He said, uh, I have problems with that. He said, I belong to the group that believed that all that ended at the first century. That that's not for today. And so the guy said, oh, but what's your problem? Well, he said, I was in church this morning. He said, and uh, the wives of four prominent members of our congregation are going around telling everybody that God healed them on Saturday night. He said, and they can prove it, that they received a miraculous healing. He 
said, that's my problem. What are we going to do about it? Now, I wish you'd ask me that question. <laughs> because being a very simple man, I could have given him a very simple answer. And the simple answer is this. It's a principle of, of the church. If you can define your God, or if you can legislate your God into any kind of a box, your God is too small. God cannot be defined. God cannot be put in a box. Our God is bigger. Our God is greater. Our God is more spectacular than anything we can imagine. God! Hey, hey no, stop, don't, don't, don't do that. I've only got five minutes. Don't do that. Dedication leads to, uh-huh, leads to, uh-huh, leads to devotion. At the beginning of summer, one of our students who was in university saw me sitting in the coffee shop, and so he came over and somebody said, uh, Des, I said, yeah. So I'd be reading some books. Oh, I said, I'm glad. I said, if you're in, in school, you ought to be reading something. Hey, he said, I've been reading some books. He said, I've been reading Thomas Aquinas. I've been reading Henry Newman. I've been reading John of the Cross. I said, have you read any of those books? I said, uh-huh, yeah. I said, I'm proud of you reading such mystical literature. He said, but I have a problem. I said, join the club. No, he said, my problem is this. By reading these books, I've come to the conclusion to live a devotional life, you have to be a monk. He said, is that true? I said, absolutely not. Either to the tone of my voice or the suddenness of my response. But he blinked. Then he came back in a much softer tone. What do you mean by that? I said, the most devotional man who ever lived was not a monk. His name is Jesus the Christ. He said, well, what is the devotional life? I said, give me a few days to think about it. He said, don't you know? I don't know. Give me a few days. A week went by and I was in the coffee shop again and he came up and said, do you have an answer to my question? I looked at him and said, what question? <laughs> oh, he said, Des, have you forgotten? I said, um, forgotten what? He said, the devotional life. I said, let me give you my answer. I said, life is a pathway. And the devotional life is a pathway. And it's bounded by two fences. On the left, you have the Holy Scriptures. 
On the right, you have the Holy Spirit. Now you can wander from left to right or from right to left, but you dare not violate those boundaries. To do so, you do so at your peril. I said, but because it's a path, it means you're supposed to go along it. I said, no, some people run. Some people jog. Some people walk. I said, the guys that you're reading, they just shuffled like an old man. They take a few steps, they stop to think. Take a few steps, they stop to think. I said, do you know how you walk along the path? He said, no. I said, well, obviously, use your feet. He said, you're not going to walk along any path without using your feet. I said, do you know what the feet mean? Uh-huh. I said, well, look at them. I said, the left foot is prayer. And the right foot is praise. I said, that's too simple. I said, you say that because you don't understand what prayer and praise is all about. I said, every time you think of prayer, you are celebrating the greatness of God. That God is bigger than your problem. God is greater than your situation. God is greater than the circumstance you find yourself in. Every time you pray, whether it's you're speaking loud or speaking soft, whether it's just a sigh from deep within, whether you're praying in the Spirit, every time you do it, you're acknowledging the greatness of God. I said, have I thought of that in those terms? I said, every time you praise, you're celebrating the goodness of God. God has been good to you. That he's touched you, he's blessed you, he's honored you. I said, now, go home and walk along that path to keep within the boundaries. Put your left foot forward. Put your right foot ahead. Prayer and pray greatness of the goodness of God. So I said, have I answered your question? And the saucy character said, which question? <laughs> I could have slapped him. <laughs> what are the words? The first one is delight, and I'm through. No, 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 no. Please. Pastor, when you get to my age, <laughs> you'll know when you're through. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, sir. Please forgive me. Desire. You see, when Christ is born in you, when that thrust begins to come forth, your desire, 
your discovery, your devotion, you begin to realize, I'm not part of a club. I'm part of a family. Now, for many, many years, I had what they called a clergy membership at Diamond Oaks Golf Club. Clergy membership just meant you paid a lot less than what the other guys paid. And I was a clergy member. My number was six. No, it wasn't. <laughs> six, one, nine. But you know, I'm not a member of a club. I'm a member of a family. And I'm not talking about the church universal. I'm talking about the church local. Of Bethesda, you are beautiful. Just celebrated 75 years. During that 75 years, it's not always been smooth. This church has gone through the fire, the fire of schism, the fire of splits, the fire of accusation, and it's come out the other side without the sooty smell of smoke. And instead of the sooty smell of smoke, it's come out of the fragrance of grace. Bethesda, you are beautiful. You're beautiful in what you do. But you're beautiful in who and what you are. And this morning, I can say the truth. Who did they turn the clock off? We have now entered in the zone <laughs> where time shall be no more. You're beautiful. This church is beautiful. We're not the biggest guy in the block. But there are few that can meet the character of this place. When I come to Bethesda, I hear the voice of Jesus in the words of my pastor. I feel the heart of Jesus in the ministry of a worship team. I see the beauty of Jesus. And I look at the ladies of Teen Challenge. And I look around and see more in some than in others. I see the beauty. And so this morning, when I read the words in John chapter 12, we will see Jesus. I can say the truth. I've seen him. And I keep on seeing him every time I come to church. Bye-bye.